Well, if you look on your note sheet this morning, you'll see at the top that we are looking at God's beauty or his glory. They're related, although they are distinct in some regards. God's glory is probably a term that you're a little bit more familiar with, even though I think that one is kind of hard for us to define sometimes. We kind of wrestle with that a little bit. We'll see some of that in our text this morning. But I I want you to stop and think about the fact that God has beauty. We don't typically think about God being beautiful. That word in our culture has probably been more relegated to feminine things than what we're going to look at today. But not only is is God beautiful, but he is the most beautiful person in the universe. He is greater than anything that you currently enjoy. His purity and his holiness is something that really is unfathomable to us. And so because God is beautiful, there will be application for you. There will be implications of what that means in your life. And so as we look at these different passages this morning, I want you to think about, first of all, the the world that we live in. We live in a world that God has created. Think about the things that you enjoy. I prayed about that this morning. Um, foods that you enjoy, music that you like to listen to. Uh, some of you enjoy art in different forms, whether it be um, poetry or writing or music or painting. Or even if you can't do art yourself, there are things that we look at and we know that there are, are things that are pleasant to appreciate. Um, last July, all of our family on Christie's side got to go to Seaside, Oregon, and and the last night that we spent there, we were out on the beach with the sun going down and having a campfire, and just the the gorgeousness of being at the waterfront, you know, it's just a, makes you think about all these things that God has given us to richly enjoy. These are gifts that he has given to us, but typically what happens is because we are selfish, that's what sin does, it causes you to be closed, and your world is very small, because we are sinful, we tend to focus on just the created things. Now, God has given us things, those things to enjoy. But the design of the gifts is to make you look up and consider the giver. So don't ever stop with your appreciation of what is in the world. All of those things should be a springboard to delight in him. And our world is designed with order and symmetry. There's lots of different people on the spectrum in terms of, of personality and interest and taste and all of that. I, I get the variance of that. But in general, we know when the world is in order. Or I should even say it in the negative. You know when things are in disorder and it's not enjoyable. It's not pleasant. So when you see something that is impressive then we're designed to be amazed. God has designed us to be filled with wonder. So these these things that we see, the the accomplishments of of people, you know, you can even watch uh, uh, sports plays in slow motion and just you're amazed at what actually took place during that split second, right? The the beauty of the the human body, what it can accomplish, the, the things that we can do. You also know when you hear people either play or sing music, when the notes aren't right, 
It's not so pleasant, right? Because there's disorder there. So the world has all of these fingerprints of who God is. It reflects the fact that God is a God of order. He's a God of of beauty and a God of symmetry. I haven't been there personally, but the, the common experience when somebody goes and visits the Grand Canyon is that when you step out and look at it, the initial response is silence because you're overwhelmed. And so we, we, we've kind of been designed to be overwhelmed with things that are bigger than us. And so we look at the created world as, as impressive as it is, all of these things should prompt us to consider God's perfect beauty and his glory. And so we're going to look this morning at the definition. What does it mean that God is beautiful? We're going to look at a few key passages. I listed several there. We're not going to have time to to go to all those today, but I want to take you to a a few of them. We'll kind of get your your bearings on what the Bible says about God's beauty and his glory because it's everywhere throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're going to see how the beauty of, of God is displayed in his son, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at the implications for you as a created person. What kind of application does God's beauty have for you? And it has daily application for us. So if you look at the definition, first of all, this is from Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology. Grudem says this, God's beauty is that attribute of God whereby he, so we're talking about a person, it's not just what he does, but it's who he is, that he is the sum of all desirable qualities. So this is helpful in a couple of different ways. The first thing is that we are reminded that as we're looking at all of these different attributes of who God is, you have to kind of force yourself to remember that God is not segmented. We have to segment these truths because we can only take in so much at one time. But God is is a perfect unit unified being of all of his attributes added up together and the total of that is his beauty and remember too that all of his attributes modify one another they strengthen one another and they are all in perfect unity so god is for example all powerful but he is also all powerful in his perfect beauty And they're not indistinguishable from one another. And so with all of these attributes, the 12 that we've looked at, the five that we're going to consider over the next couple of weeks, the sum of them, adding them all up, is the sum total of of God's glory. That's what he is. That's who he is. And it reminds us of this. Secondly, that you are a spiritual being. Your soul has been created to be satisfied only in him. The reason that the world is dissatisfied is because they're trying to take physical things to satisfy a spiritual need. That doesn't work. You cannot be satisfied only with the gifts. Those gifts should prompt you to worship the one who's given you the gift because only the Lord Jesus Christ can satisfy the soul. Or, 
if you're trying to find satisfaction apart from Christ, whether it be entertainment, relationships, I mentioned sports earlier, the college that you want to go to, the career that you want to accomplish, all those things can be enjoyed if you enjoy them in their proper place. But if you're, if you're looking for satisfaction apart from Christ, then you will never be satisfied because your soul has been designed to be in relationship with him. In fact, the Bible tells us that we are to seek first his kingdom. That's your first and ultimate priority. Why are you going to get married in the future? It is to display the glories of Christ in your relationship. Why are you going to get a career? is so that you can be a worker that shows that there is purpose in life and you are working for your Savior. Why, when you walk through difficulties, why does that happen? God is working his purposes in your, in your challenges, and we're going to see that later on today as well. So God is the sum total of all of his desirable qualities. That is his beauty and his glory. So let's look at a couple of passages. If you're there, Exodus chapter 24. If you kind of uh, think back to your historical context, your biblical context, when I say Exodus chapter 20, what's the first thing that should come to your mind? Ten Commandments. So we are just now on Mount Sinai having the nation of Israel being delivered from Egypt. God has taken them to the mountain. He has given them his law. And now he is explaining to them how he wants them to function as a people, as a nation. He's giving them their instructions. So I want you to see here, Exodus 24, look at verse 15. It says, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. So God's beauty and his glory is, it had the appearance of a consuming fire. There is an intensity here about God's perfections that should give you a little bit of healthy hesitation when you come into his presence as the church or when you come into his presence Privately, as you read your Bible, as you pray, God is not your equal. God is not just a big person. God is greater and more glorious, and he is infinite in his perfections. And so there should be reverence. There should be a holy fear. Not, not for, the, uh, for the believer, it's not a fear of terror. It's a fear of, of worship. And so don't, Don't come into God's presence casually. And yet, at the same time, he he invites you to come. And you can only come because of Christ. If you do not have Christ, 
God is a consuming fire, and you will not escape his punishment. And so if you haven't come to Christ, he has given you grace of another day to, to repent of your sins and to become a new creation. So that's the first thing we see. We don't have time, but if you're taking notes, you can write down Hebrews chapter 12, verses 25 through 29, because in that passage, it also says, for our God is a consuming fire. It seems that the author was thinking back to Exodus chapter 24. Once you guys turn to Psalm 104, interesting imagery that we're given here. Look at verse 1. The psalmist says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heavens like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of his upper chambers in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers flaming fire his ministers. Verse 2 gives us an interesting picture here that God is, is so glorious and so beautiful that it describes him as wrapping himself in light as putting on a garment. It's an amazing picture of God's purity. Turn to Psalm chapter 113. Verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory, or his beauty, is above the heavens. So there's a couple things to pull out from this passage. First of all, when is praise supposed to happen? According to this passage. From when to when? Yeah. Forevermore. That's good. Specifically like in the setting of the day, what does he say? From the rising of the sun to the setting. So have you praised God yet? This morning? When you finish with the gathering of the saints and you go home, will there be praise throughout the day today? And as you go into the night and as you end your day, we are very inconsistent because he's worthy of it. But then it also says in verse 4 that God's glory is above the heavens. I don't know if you've ever done a study of, of space the universe, and at times, you know, they, they try to give you perspective of how big things are and how far apart our created universe is. And every once in a while, they'll give us an imagery that it takes our breath away. And this psalm says that God's glory is so magnificent. His beauty is so incomprehensible that it is greater than it is above the heavens. There is no limit to this attribute of who he is. Turn to Luke chapter 2. 
We'll jump into the New Testament here as we consider these passages. This one in particular, one that we're very familiar with, one that we are probably going to hear a lot over the next couple of weeks, which is by God's goodness to us. But I want you to listen to this event in light of God's glory or his beauty. We're going to read verses 1 through 14. It says, Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was at the house in the family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there is born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. The response of those that were witnessing this event when God's glory appeared is that they fell. And they were terribly frightened. I don't know if you've ever experienced true fear to the point where it's debilitating. This is what they experienced when God's beauty showed up in the field. And it shone around them. So we think about the imagery in Exodus chapter 24, that God's glory was like a consuming fire. You think about this, this field being illuminated with, with, with this light that is uh, incomprehensible to us. And they fell down and were afraid because of God's beauty. Same thing. Turn to Revelation chapter 22. This is the end of our, our Bible. John is describing what the eternal state is going to be like as God is restoring all of this brokenness in the world and he's going to usher in the eternal state, which we commonly call heaven. Listen to the description. After sin has been dealt with, after Satan has been cast into the, into the sea of fire. Revelation 22, verse 1. It says, then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. 
and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You guys notice that there's a tree bearing fruit. Genesis chapter 2 and 3, there's a tree bearing fruit and man corrupted themselves. God is restoring the beauty of the garden. Look at verse 3. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. God's glory will be the light of the eternal state. Can you imagine beholding God's face? It's amazing. So how are these attributes displayed in Christ specifically? I want you guys to turn to John chapter 1. Another familiar passage for us. Look at verse 9. Chapter 1, verse 9. It says, There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world. Notice light is a person. It's Christ. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, his beauty, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so when you think about the way that people responded to Jesus during his earthly ministry and even the, the limited views that we see of him as the resurrected Christ, he is irresistible. The things that he said, the miracles that he performed, his, his authority when he speaks, he is, he is glorious. And he is something that people are, are drawn to. And so that's the, that's the conflict. He is perfect in his holiness. And yet the Bible tells us that he's also full of grace and truth because we could not approach him unless he has grace toward us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Just as a side note, people that claim that the Bible does not say that Jesus is God have not read the Bible. It's everywhere. I'm just showing you four. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, 
and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ is the radiance of God's beauty. They are one. They're both perfectly unified. So are these the things that we think about when we come to the Bible, when we approach Christ? Do you think about his radiance of glory and beauty and perfection and holiness? Because that's who he is. Turn to Matthew chapter 17. Even during Jesus' earthly ministry, he gives a glimpse of this beauty to the disciples. Matthew 17, look at verse 1. It says, six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. And his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, taking, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. So Jesus peels back his humanity for just a moment. His, his beauty is, is radiated, and the disciples fell on their faces because they were terrified of who he was, his, his presence, just his presence. And then his grace, he reaches and touches them and says, you'll notice that a lot throughout the scriptures, right? There's fear, do not be afraid. He does it again, look in Revelation chapter one. John is exiled on the island of, of Patmos for being a witness for the gospel of Christ. This is essentially a, an imprisonment for John. And look what he sees here. Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. He says, I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man 
clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Now, granted, there's a difference between the vision that John is having, seeing the the risen Christ in his beauty. But don't come into God's presence casually. There should be a, a reverence when you open up your Bible and you come and you listen to his word and when you offer prayers. He, he invites you to come. He tells you to come boldly. He tells you that you have access through Christ. But he's also a consuming fire. And he is glorious. And there should be worship. And there should be, there should be the sense of his presence after you've come into his presence to worship and to pray, to receive the scriptures. There should be the, the essence of that presence as you go and you're walking through your day dealing with temptations. It's like there should be that, that sense that you don't, you don't want to displease this one who is perfect in holiness. But I want to give you some specific applications. When we think about God's beauty, his glory, you know, what effect should this have on us? You guys are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for what? For God's glory. So every single thing in your life should be an opportunity for God to be honored. We understand that. But I want to show you a couple of things that are specific to this consideration of his beauty. Turn to John chapter 3. Every sin that you commit is rooted in idolatry. So if you choose to go against God's commands, you are setting yourself as a higher authority than God's word. And so you've placed yourself as a God. That's what sin is. It's always rooted in idolatry. For those of you who love Christ, you hate it when you sin. You desire to change. You want to grow spiritually and you want to resist those times of, of sin. So how do you battle that in specifically when considering the fact that God is beautiful? God's beauty. The more that you see the beauty of Christ, 
the more you think about him, the more you constantly put him before you and you meditate on this truth, the clearer that you see the attributes of Christ, the less tempting those sins are. The beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ will easily consume these lesser sinful things. And so if you're struggling with sin, that means you need to do what John says here in chapter 3, verse 30, when John the Baptist says he must increase and I must decrease. To battle idolatry, a very specific fight against your, your, your human flesh that is drawn towards sin is to meditate on the beauties of Christ. And this is not an abstract experience. I'm talking about in the word, reading, thinking about, talking about, studying, praying over the beauties of who Christ is. Because the more you see who he is, those things that have a hold on you will start to become less and less because you'll realize what they really are. That's what the beauty of Christ can do for you. It can give you this, the, the strength to fight against idolatry. There's some very um, direct passages in the Old Testament, specifically in Isaiah, where it talks about the futility of idol worship. And it exposes how, how silly it is. But we, we tend to, to say, well, you know, idol worship are for those people that, that built the statues, right? Statues, statues. But your idolatry is, is just as real, even though you don't build a statue. And so consuming your thoughts with the person of Christ is how you battle those moments of temptation. So resist idolatry by considering his, his beauty. The second thing I want you to consider is your evangelism, that God's beauty should motivate you to tell others about Christ. I want you guys to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For those of you who haven't seen the video, um, I've seen it. I don't remember what it's called. Expelled. Anybody seen that? It's, it's been a, a while now. It's not a Christian movie. Uh, it's a fascinating documentary to watch to see how people that have even explored the idea of intelligent design in the academic circles, uh, the, the world cannibalizes them. They just, they can't accept that even being up for discussion. The reason that particular video is so compelling is because at the end of the video, there's a, there's an interview with Dawkins, thank you, Richard Dawkins, who is like the poster child for atheism currently. And Ben Stein, the one who's interviewing him, says, if you, if you die and you stand before God and you realize that he's real, what would you say to him? And Dawkins' answer is this. He, he said, I would say, sir, why have you gone to such pains to hide yourself? 
The reason I bring that up is because if, there, if there's a skeptic sitting in the room, one of the things that a skeptic would say is, you keep talking about how God's glory is above the heavens and it's irresistible and it's, 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 you cannot ignore it, then why are there so many people that hate God, say that he doesn't exist, and they, they don't, they're not amazed with his glory? How is that even possible? That's exactly what Dawkins was saying. You have hidden your, if you're real, you've hidden yourself. And why have you done that? Well, we know that's not the case. Look what Paul tells us here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Actually, look at verse 3. It says, and even if our gospel is veiled, if it's hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving in this passage? Using the language of this verse. Using the language of this verse. The God of what? This world. William's correct. That's where I was heading. The God of this world, the God of this age, is Satan. Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, so the gospel is veiled. Does that not give you a different perspective on people in your life that are not saved? Or when you engage in sharing the gospel with somebody that at this point has resisted and they don't have any interest or they're hostile against it. The glory of Christ, the beauty of who he is should motivate your evangelism so that you pray that their eyes will be opened. You can't debate somebody and convince them intellectually that these things are true because it's not an intellectual issue. The issue is spiritual. Satan has blinded them. They cannot see the glories of Christ, which is above the heavens. It is a heart-wrenching truth. Something that is so obvious in the world, they can't see it. That's how damning sin is. And so when you consider people that are lost, the glory of Christ should motivate you to pray for them that God would open their eyes to the truth. Pray before you talk with them. Pray silently so they don't think you're crazy in the middle of the conversation. I guess you could pray out loud too. That'd be fine. Pray for them after you're done talking with them because it has to be a work that God will do. So it should motivate our evangelism. But I want you also to see that the glories of Christ has a direct impact on your, your pain in life. Why don't you guys turn to John chapter 9. Up to this point in your life, I want you to consider the most difficult thing that you've had to go through. The hardest trial. Whatever that might be. And maybe you're in it right now. 
how does God's beauty and his glory help you with that? Look at John 9, verse 1. It's talking about Jesus. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God may be displayed in him. Your trials, the the pain that you have in life is not arbitrary. It's not random. God has brought not only things for you to richly enjoy in life, which we should give thanks for from the beginning of the day to the end, but he has also brought pain and difficulty so that his works might be displayed in you. That gives you a different perspective on your trials. Even in, 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 in the middle of being overwhelmed by them, you go back to John chapter 9 and you say, God is doing something here. And I trust him. I trust his character. I trust that he has never failed. I trust that everything that he does is righteous and good. It does not mean that your trial goes away. It does not mean that there's not loss and difficulty. But Jesus tells us, especially for his children, that all things work together for good for those that love him and who are called according to his purpose. So God's glory, his work, his majesty is directly tied into your worst life moments because he's doing something in the middle of them. I think I've shared before, but we had a friend who died of cancer a a number of years ago. And and, uh, one of the last conversations that that Christy had with, with this dear woman, this dear saint, she said, look, cancer's terrible. She goes, but I've never sensed God's presence more than during these times of sickness. What a testimony. So I don't want you guys to think that the the Bible is, is flippant about how hard life is. But what I'm telling you is that it gives you perspective on why life is painful. God is doing something. It is so that his work may be displayed in your life. And then lastly, like I'd mentioned with our other psalm, God's glory should prompt us to to give thanks. Turn to Psalm chapter 50. Just a little bit more in the context of the psalms. I was having a conversation with somebody recently about the Psalms has a, an amazing uh, mixture of God is on his throne, so you need to get your mind right, but then also coming back with compassion and mercy and comfort. It's both. Remember who God is, 
but God is also gracious. Look at Psalm chapter 50, verse 22. It says, now consider this, you who forgot God. What a rebuke. Consider this, you who forgot God, or I will tear you in pieces, and there will be none to deliver. He who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me, and to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. So this is another one of those passages that that tells you both. If you forget who God is, if you forget to be grateful, if you forget to be thankful, there will be repercussions for that. But, he says, bringing a sacrifice of thanksgiving, you're like, well, how can being thankful be a sacrifice? Think about your trial. You don't, your emotions, you don't feel like being grateful. You don't, you're, you don't feel like giving thanks. You don't even understand the full context of why this is happening to you. But you go back to who God is in his unchanging character and you say he is worthy of praise because I don't deserve any good thing in life. Anyway. But he's doing something in the midst of the difficulty. And so you, you bring a sacrifice of praise and God says, that honors me. That's the word in Hebrew for that glorifies my name. So his glory should cause you to give thanks because you want him to be honored. One thing that really helped me was connecting the idea of giving God glory. I used to think that giving God glory was limited to what other people see in my life. It's included. But what you do in secret And how you respond to God privately also gives him glory and honor, whether people see it or not. Whether it be a lack of thanksgiving or or your life, you, you, you do something righteous and only God sees it, he's honored by that and he's glorified by that. So expand your mind, think through the scriptures. Ask God to give you a fuller understanding of his perfect beauty and it will have a direct impact in these areas in your life in ways that are, you are designed to be benefited by his beauty. You're, you're hardwired to respond to him because he's beautiful. But remember, the psalm says, don't forget him. Don't forget him. Let's pray. Father, help us to be people who worship your name consistently and regardless of what's right in front of us, we don't think about you being beautiful often enough. And sometimes I, I fear that the idea of you being glory, glory, uh, glorious is uh, too vague and, and too removed. And yet, Father, it, it has a direct impact on our soul and, and how we live our life. And so, Lord, help in our minds, help us to see Jesus increase. Help us to uh, attack our pride with your word so that we may decrease. 
And Father, help us to be people who are constantly giving thanks because you are good and you don't change. And so as we go to gather with the congregation to sing and to listen to the scriptures, we pray that we would give you worship that you are pleased with. And we ask this in Jesus' name.